Welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk with experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and more to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps that you can take in your effort to shift toward a healthier lifestyle. Today, I talk with Debbie Fong. Debbie is a clinically trained registered dietitian. She is currently in private practice and is also a consulting dietitian to a couple of medical offices. She provides nutrition counseling and support to clients with various health challenges in in-person and online consultations. She's passionate about making sustainable, healthy, and compassionate food choices. She promotes whole food, plant-based diets to help her clients lose weight for the long term without counting calories, as well as to help prevent or manage various lifestyle diseases such as type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Before her interest in health and wellness, she was a successful investment professional on Bay Street, but she left it all behind after she became aware of how our daily food choices and food systems contribute to chronic diseases, environmental harm, and social injustices. Now she's a strong believer in giving back to her community and volunteers as a dietitian for several charitable organizations, including Toronto Vegetarian Association, Toronto Vegetarian Food Bank, and Challenge 22. In 2019, and in 2020, she was invited by the Canadian Liver Foundation and UHN to make presentations on healthy eating in support of their initiative to promote liver health. So if you could tell us first um, a little bit about yourself and what's interesting uh, about you in particular is you weren't always a dietitian. You started out as an investment professional. So if you could tell me a little bit about your time on Bay Street as well. Uh, first off, thank you very much, Clean, for um, having me. I'm so glad you have this opportunity to uh, talk about uh, what is what is important to both of us or to the uh, plant-based world. Before I uh, got into food and nutrition, as you said, I was an investment professional. I always loved meat, eggs, and dairy, and I didn't like vegetables at all. More than 15 years ago, I started to boycott shark fin soup. I actually don't remember what prompted me to do that. At that time, I was not particularly knowledgeable of or focused on food justice or any social justice causes. I was only vaguely aware of climate change. My partner at that time was a pescatarian. He knew quite a bit about nutrition. He would give me literature uh, about nutrition to read, but he never asked me to go veg. When I ate animals like chicken wings or chicken thighs, he would make gestures like burp, 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 the chicken has no wings or he would use his fingers to bounce on a table as if it was like a chicken lost a, a leg or a thigh or something. But I never made the connection about animals having to die before I could eat them. I remember one weekend afternoon, probably 13 years or so ago, I was on the computer and I stumbled upon an article about climate, climate refugees. The article talked about a family with very young kids being displaced by uh, drought and having to walk 400 kilometers to find another food source. That distance, 400 kilometers, just struck me like a ton, like a ton of break. At that time, my career uh, required me to travel to see clients. So just a day or two before that weekend afternoon, I drove 400, sorry, four hours from Toronto to Windsor to meet a corporate client. So as I was reading that article, I was thinking how possible or actually impossible for me to have to walk 400 kilometers with my young stepson at that time and my cats to find food. Now, after that incident, I spent lots of time outside work and my home duties, researching and reading about climate change. One thing led to another. I discovered animal cruelty in various industries like fashion, food, entertainment, and so on. And at that time, I was still eating lots of seafood and chocolate. But there were two things that really turned me vegan. The first one was Gary Urofsky's speech. I think the speech was like the best ever speech. That really, really um, hit me. Another, another item was an article in The Economist, I think it was in The Economist, about commercial fishing, like bottom trawler and all these things. Shortly after watching that speech and reading that article about commercial fishing, I remember having a dream in which a very big fish swam past me and suddenly turned around and looked at me. I woke up, I was sweating, I realized that I was such a big hypocrite, boycotting shark fin soup while eating fish, 
knowing very well at that point already that commercial fishing killed more sharks as bycatch than the shark fin industry. So shortly after that, I became vegan. I went through my, a brief period of taste bud rehab. It didn't take me long, but I did go through um, some needed change in my uh, taste buds. After I became vegan, that was more than 10 years ago, I, I started to see things, even things that I was very familiar with or comfortable with through a different lens. I started to feel awkward about working in, an in the investment industry where I was paid quite handsomely while feeling ve very sad about so much hunger and suffering out there. There was, um, uh, I remember at one, uh, at an executive dinner, uh, I was chatting with my colleagues, especially one who had a PhD degree, very smart and very accomplished about eating fish. Um, he and I both knew that uh, there, were, there, there was a study out there saying that by year 2048, uh, all global fisheries would have collapsed. And he said, that's why I told my four daughters, if they wanted to eat fish, they should eat it now. That to me, just, just so pathetic. It was so disgusting. And at that time, I was also puzzled why my partner and a couple of friends of mine who were vegetarian never talked to me about the benefits of going veg. So I felt that I was, and, and I felt that I was not stupid or uneducated. If I didn't know about animal cruelty, climate change, or social injustice, all linked to animal agriculture, many people probably didn't know either. So I felt the urge to find ways to spread the message about veganism. Uh, at that time, I, I already learned and, and read a lot about plant-based nutrition on my own, but it was my partner at that time who really gave me the push to get into nutrition to become a dietitian. It was definitely daunting for me to leave a lot of money on the table to go from Bay Street to, uh, to Main Street to become a dietitian. Uh, and along the way, it was, and even now, it's still like a bittersweet experience. But I, I still think that it's a, it's a blessing that I, I am able to, uh, to be a dietitian and I'm able to have dietetic knowledge uh, as, uh, in, in my toolkit to do my vegan outreach. So I'm, I'm very happy about that. Very interesting past. And it sounds like a lot of this stuff that you came across was um, ecological, environmental, and even some activist stuff that you saw that kind of guided you to make this decision. What, what exactly was it that, I'm curious, what exactly was it that, of all the things you saw, made you interested most in taking the nutritional route and becoming a dietitian? I, I really think a lot of global crises ultimately come back to what we eat. And I also think that to reach someone's heart, it's much easier by reaching them through food, through the stomach. So, so because of these two things, the root cause of so many global issues, uh, hunger, um, climate change, um, all these things, uh, animal cruelty in particular, uh, and how to expand my reach to people. So that's why with all these things, two things combined, I decided to choose nutrition. And it, as I said, it was a very scary experience for me to have to leave an industry which I felt so comfortable with. And I, uh, I was so well paid to an industry which was so new to me, even yeah. though I already knew quite a bit about plant-based nutrition at that point. Still, it's a, a big career change for me. Absolutely. And you make a really good point about um, uh, how important food is to people to get to their heart, especially because food is so linked to culture. Exactly. Um, uh, tell me more about what you do as a dietitian then. So um, maybe give our listeners a sense of how you work with people, um, what you do on a daily basis and the difference between, for those who don't understand, a dietitian would do versus a nutritionist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. I mean, I, I, I know even my family members and many friends of mine don't know the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist. First, what I do, uh, what I do as a dietitian, I'm a consulting dietitian to a couple of medical clinics, including a heart rehab clinic, as well as to a hospital-based clinical trial that studies uh, women's health and fertility. I also have my private practice and I provide nutrition counseling services to individuals and families. Occasionally, I take on project-based nutrition-related work. For, uh, for instance, uh, last year, I was retained by the Canadian Liver Foundation and Yua Chan to help de uh, develop an educational series 
about healthy eating for the liver. I also use my dietetic knowledge in various volunteer roles, uh, like for the food, uh, Toronto Vegetarian Food Bank, uh, sometimes for TV, for the TVA. And I don't know whether you know of a group called Challenge 22. It, it's a global organization helping people to go plant-based, to, to go vegan. And it's, uh, it's kind of sad for me to, to see that there are only maybe five volunteer dietitians around the world to support that challenge 20, that organization challenge 22. But in any case, I'm just glad that I, I, I'm able to be one of them. Uh, and I also do uh, community presentations a lot of times uh, for free, just to spread the message about healthy eating and always find ways to sneak in like whole food plant-based eating uh, to audiences that are primarily uh, not plant-based. Uh, so that's what I do. And how I work with people. Some of my clients are plant-based, but many of them are not. I actually work with anyone who wants to eat healthy, whatever that means to them. My practice is guided by client-centered approach and the theory of change. These two concepts were the concepts I used in my uh, previous investment career. So I need to understand what a client's goal, goals are. Oftentimes their goals are tied to any existing condition, health conditions that, that they may have. It could be like weight issue, diabetes, gout, heart disease, or you name it. Sometimes these goals are not very clearly defined or not uh, clearly um, made known to, to me or to, to a dietitian. For instance, a, a recent client of mine said that he wanted to feel better or have more energy. As we chatted more, I realized that in fact, he wanted to lose weight, to feel, and in particular, uh, to look better. That's because he's in the performance industry and appearance matters a great deal in his case. And uh, sometimes a client might not volunteer all the information at the beginning. Um, for example, if, if a client had uh, an eating disorder, I needed to know because I wouldn't want to set un unrealistic expectations because even, even whole food plant-based nutrition has a lot to offer to improve human health. It's not a cure-all. So I need to make sure that I set the client's expectation appropriately. And then I need to work with a client's willpower and skill power. So in essence, I need to find out where a client is at in the following three areas, how important it is for them to reach their health goals. So this speaks to their motivation. And the next one is to, it's about their conviction. How ready are they to make changes? And then the third one is um, uh, to understand any obstacles that may be, uh, that may be in the way of them uh, reaching their, their health goals. So that speaks to obstacles and skill power. So as I said earlier, I work with anyone, whether they eat animals or not, I find ways to bring up uh, the option of whole food plant-based eating. Uh, even, even sometimes that may, be, that may have to be done at the risk of losing a client. But I think it's very important to put all the viable options on the table to help them make truly informed decisions about their food choices. But that, having said that, I do roll with resistance and am, mind, and am mindful that not everyone has the ability to go 100% plant-based, whether they are physiologically, um, not that they are physiologically unable to do so, but sometimes it's just, it's a matter of having the, 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 the knowledge and the finance, financial means to do that. So that's, uh, that's how, uh, in a nutshell, that's how I work with my clients, uh, see what is the best uh, option for my client and how to, uh, and where I can make the most impact in helping them. The third component of this question is, what's the difference between a dietitian and a, and a nutritionist? Dietitians are regulated health professionals like doctors and nurses. These are health, regulated health professionals. In Canada, registered dietitian is a protected title uh, under the Dietetics Act. In, in some provinces of Canada, the, the, the term nutritionist is also protected. So for a dietitian, uh, sorry, for, uh, for an individual to call himself or herself a registered dietitian, that individual has to register with the provincial regulatory body. Uh, and for me, the, in Ontario, the provincial regulatory body is the College of Dietitians of Ontario. Well, the, the purpose of the regulatory colleges is not to protect dietitians, it's actually to protect the public. If a dietitian practices unethically, at least the public uh, will have a way to uh, to launch a uh, to file a complaint, and the dietitian may lose the license. 
depending on the circumstances. And on the other hand, a nutritionist in uh, most provinces, except um, like Quebec, uh, Alberta PI, I think Nova, uh, Nova Scotia as well, it's not a protected title. That means anyone in those provinces, uh, except those four that I, I mentioned, can call themselves a nutritionist. This is the case in Ontario. To become a, a dietitian in Ontario, one has to complete an accredited undergraduate degree in nutrition and then uh, an accredited dietetic internship program and then complete a national exam. I am aware of several titles nutritionists can use such as registered nutritionist, holistic nutritionist, or nutrition coach or something like that. There is no set minimum training one must have to go through to become a nutritionist in Ontario I'm talking about. Now some nutritionists do have education and training in nutrition but some may not. So non-dietitian nutritionists are not regulated by any provincial college, even though they may call themselves like a registered nutritionist or certified nutritionist or something like that. So, um, and for me, I believe in formal education and rigorous training uh, for the benefits of patient safety and public health. If someone wants to uh, use the service of a nutritionist, nutritionist, I think it's better to check their credentials and education um, before following um, their advice. Having said all these, I went through the competitive dietetic program and feel very lucky to become a dietitian, but I am deeply concerned that the dietetic curriculum and training are evolving at a pace too slow to save humanity or even protecting um, public health. Just to give a small hint as to what I'm referring to, I learned little about the healing power of whole food plant-based nutrition in my dietetic training. In fact, I had to learn it on all on my own and had to nudge some of my professors and fellow dietitians to pay attention to plant-based diet, to pay some decent attention to plant-based diets. So while I, I, um, I value my uh, dietitian um, credential and title, but I also have concern about how the curriculum hasn't changed enough. That's all very interesting. I didn't know a lot of that. I learned a lot in what you just said. At the beginning of your answer, um, I just want to point out how many extracurricular type things that you're doing. That's a lot of things that you're doing. And additionally, as a dietitian, it's, it's, it's not as easy as just, you know, knowing about nutrition and telling people to eat this and not this. You also, it seems, have to have a bit of psychology in there to kind of like anticipate your, your, your client's needs and things like that. And maybe a little bit about like behavior change and all that. So there's a lot more to it than I than, than I guess like, you know, someone on the street would think. Tell me more about some of the, the common things that you, you deal with in terms of lifestyle diseases uh, on a daily basis and how making changes in your diet, even if it's not going completely whole foods, plant-based, or maybe just more uh, getting more greens on the plate and trying to be plant predominant or whatever the you know vernacular is, how important that is to changing these lifestyle illnesses in combination with things like stress management and sleep and such. Well, thanks for the question. I like the way you put it. Having even just a bit more greens on the plate uh, actually helps. Now, first off, I am not um, a certified health coach or something like that, although I, uh, in my clinical work, I do provide some counseling on stress management, uh, uh, sleep quality, and so on. But let me deal with the nutrition side first. I have provided nutrition counseling and support to clients with uh, various health challenges. Uh, the common ones uh, have a lot, I have a long list, unfortunately, but I won't name all of them, but the common ones include like heart disease, type two diabetes, GERD, um, like acid reflux, arthritis, including gout, which is a common form of uh, arthritis, uh, weight concerns, mostly uh, overweight or obesity, but occasionally um, the need to gain weight as well, and various kinds of digestive issues, including Crohn's, and uh, as well as uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. More often than not, uh, a client has more than one of these common health conditions. You asked how making changes, like eating better or even just adding a bit uh, uh, more greens uh, to the uh, to the plate, um, or and stress management can be powerful in treating health conditions, like those ones I mentioned. The simple answer is that these health conditions are lifestyle diseases. Unhealthy diet or eating uh, or unhealthy eating or poor stress management are two common lifestyle risk factors that lead to 
many of these lifestyle diseases. So let me use um, cardiovascular disease as an example. The most common type of cardiovascular disease we encounter include hypertension and um, atherosclerosis, uh, which is hardening of the arteries. Hypertension and, and arthro um, atherosclerosis often lead to coronary artery disease, um, heart attack and stroke and so on. Now, these heart conditions are caused by lifestyle risk factors such as smoking, unhealthy diet, being overweight, uh, lack of physical ex exercise, uh, excess alcohol consumption and stress. If we remove these risk factors, we are removing the causes of these problems. That means heart disease will not happen. In other words, we can prevent heart disease from happening by removing the root causes. Now, for those who already have heart disease, they can actually stop heart disease from progressing by adopting proper lifestyle modifications. And the healing power of making these lifestyle changes doesn't stop there. Uh, that's because heart disease often is linked to other health conditions, such as obesity, type 2 diabetes, and so on. In fact, these health conditions share common lifestyle risk factors. For example, unhealthy diet, stress, and inactivity. Sometimes they may also be risk factors for each other. For instance, being overweight is a risk factor for type 2 diabetes. So the lifestyle modification um, a client or a patient can make to improve their heart condition will likely positively benefit other health conditions. Um, so again, making lifestyle changes like eating better or uh, better managing stress, it's, a, it's powerful simply because it deals with the root cause of lifestyle disease without the side effects that often come with like medications and possibly surgeries. As you kind of just alluded to, you know, getting, getting, eating more whole food plant-based or getting more greens on the plate that can help prevent or ameliorate a lot of these types of conditions, a lot of these lifestyle diseases, but what are some of the common foods, things that we eat on a daily basis that, especially here in the West, that ma makes the situation worse or can make the situation worse? And why, and why are these foods in particular, um, what about them mechanistically is, is causing problems? Yeah, I can um, go into different directions uh, in answering this question, but let me use a few examples to show how or why um, certain foods, primarily animal products, are less optimal than plant foods uh, for optimal human health. We, we know that we have solid evidence showing that animal products can lead to uh, various lifestyle diseases, um, and replacing animal products with healthy whole, whole plant foods will help um, prevent um, many lifestyle diseases or, or better manage or even reverse many lifestyle diseases. So let me give you some examples. Um, saturated fat and cholesterol are not good for heart health. Meat and dairy, we know, are very high in saturated fat and cholesterol. Eggs, very high in cholesterol. All these can raise LDL um, cholesterol. That's the bad cholesterol. Um, and these foods can cause fatty streaks to be formed inside our arteries. And over time, this can lead to hardening of blood vessels. Uh, that's the atherosclerosis and can further develop to cause blockage resulting in heart attack and stroke and so on. And IGF-1 is another compound. IGF-1 is insulin-like growth factor one. It's a natural human growth hormone needed for children to grow from, uh, from being a child into adulthood. But adults, are, we are done growing and we don't need or want high levels of IGF-1. We definitely don't want uh, mutated cells or cancer cells to grow or proliferate uncontrollably inside our body. Uh, now, animal protein consumption, including dairy, appears to stimulate our liver to produce more IGF-1 or to, to ramp up IGF-1 production. On the other hand, plant protein consumption does not seem to have the same effect. So here's another reason why it's good for, our, for human health to replace animal products with whole plant foods. Okay, another one is fiber 
uh, I love to talk about fiber. There's so many good things coming from fiber. There's no fiber in meat, egg, and dairy. If our diet is high in meat, but low in fiber-rich foods, the bad gut bugs in our digestive system will crowd out the good ones. And bad gut bugs produced by products such as like TMA, uh, which gets into, uh, um, which our, the, our liver will turn uh, TMA into TMAO. And TMAO has been found to be not friendly to our blood vessels and to our kidney system. So that's another reason why having plant foods, whole plant foods rich in fiber, while minimizing or avoiding uh, animal products, it's good for our health. Another one is excess fat intake, uh, how, how it affects type 2 diabetes. Now, type 2 diabetes is not caused by eating carbohydrate, um, even though some of my fellow dietitians still think so. Um, it's actually largely caused by excess, excess fat that builds up inside the liver and muscle cells. Uh, as the fat clogging the liver and muscle cells, insulin becomes less effective in bringing glucose from the bloodstream into the cells. Um, so as the fat continues to clog up these cells, insulin resistance will eventually progress to prediabetes or full-blown type 2 diabetes. Usually the first line of treatment for people with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes is lose some weight or do some and do some exercise, especially for overweight patients. Now, losing some excess weight means less fat clogging up the muscle and liver cells, thus allowing insulin to do its job of letting glucose into the cells rather than accumulating in the bloodstreams. So that's why avoiding fatty foods or high fat foods, again, animal products rich in, in, in especially saturated fat and so on, will uh, help lower the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And now another one, uh, 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 it's about calorie density. I talk a lot about calorie density when I counsel patients, especially those ones who need to lose weight. There is no fiber and much less uh, water content in animal products, for example, meat and eggs, uh, when compared to whole plant foods like fruit and vegetables. But animal products are also, as I mentioned earlier, are high in saturated fat. So animal products, especially meat and cheese, are much more calorie dense than whole plant foods. We would want foods to be high in calories when food sources or when food choices are limited or when food was scarce. But in Canada and in other developed countries, obesity is an epidemic in Canada or even a pandemic around the world. Um, one in three Canadians is obese and one in three children or youth between age six to 17 are considered to have a weight, a weight issue, being overweight or obese. Now, as I mentioned earlier, being overweight or obese in and of itself is a risk factor for various lifestyle diseases, like type two diabetes, heart disease, and so on. So eating nutrient-rich foods, but lower dense, with lower, den a lower calorie density, can help people lose weight or attain a healthier weight. So that's why, and also there have been uh, clinical trials showing that plant-based eating is effective in uh, weight loss and in helping people prevent or better managing or even reversing um, like type 2 diabetes and other uh, uh, chronic lifestyle diseases. The broad study came to my mind. I actually did a presentation on the broad study uh, some time ago, um, but I, I don't remember all the details. I remember that it's, uh, it, it was done, it was released in 2017. Um, it talked about how whole food plant-based eating uh, uh, helped participants uh, lose more weight when compared to uh, participants in the control group uh, uh, um, on uh, conventional um, uh, uh, diet. Another one, another study that came to my mind is a very recent study done, uh, released uh, by, by PCRM. It was a crossover study um, recently published in PubMed. The findings show that participants on a low-fat vegan diet actually improved their body weight lipid concentrations and insulin sensitivity from their baseline. And not only that, all these improvements um, are more pronounced when compared to uh, their own results when they were on a Mediterranean uh, diet in the same study. Um, so it was a, a pretty powerful study, uh, given the design being a crossover study.
So uh, I hope I've, I've given you enough examples yeah. to show how uh, these um, certain compounds or components in animal foods actually exacerbate um, uh, lifestyle, uh, chronic lifestyle diseases. And I'm glad you, you brought up fiber. That's something very interesting because you hear all the time about um, you know, macronutrients, uh, protein, fat, carbohydrates, but we don't hear much about fiber and fiber is immensely important. So I think it's great that, mm -hmm. you, that, you, that you outlined that. Now you mentioned the animal foods, processed meats, red meat, and all the other animal products that people consume. And still, even though there's dozens of studies and I think um, the World Health Organization has classified processed meat as a type one carcinogen and, and red meat is a type two carcinogen, meaning that it is, can cause or is linked to cancer. Despite that, there's still, you know, there's always a debate raging against uh, meat products in particular, because there's always going to be special interest groups. And there's always studies that come out that uh, suggest that there might not be a link there. One recent study, it was the, uh, the PURE study, and it linked processed meats to higher risk of cardiovascular disease, which is what dozens of other studies have also done. So I, I like sometimes in these podcasts to do a little bit of a, you know, a deep dive and get into a study like this. So I'm curious if you could give us a better idea of, of what this study found and maybe how this study fits into the wider breadth of, of what we already know about meat and its link to cancer and heart disease. Yeah, I, uh, I share your frustration that there, there is already so much evidence um, uh, showing that uh, more meat, more cancer and more heart disease. And, but on the other hand, more whole plant foods, better health outcomes. But we still have to talk about all these like frustrating findings or, or findings coming from these uh, um, certain studies driven by industry, um, uh, special interest groups. Um, uh, you, you're right that the PURE study released earlier this year, this did say that a higher intake of processed meat was associated with a higher risk of mortality and, uh, and major cardiovascular disease. Unfortunately, it also reported that they found no significant associations between unprocessed red meat and poultry um, and mortality uh, and major heart disease. Honestly, uh, I personally uh, find it frustrating and sometimes find it, find it unproductive to, to, uh, to have to like dig deep into this, but I will only briefly talk about it um, and, and give a few comments. The, uh, the 2021 PURE study used the database from the 2017 PURE study. Uh, the database is huge with information uh, from over 135,000 people uh, in, I think, uh, 21 uh, in 21 countries. It was already revealed back in 2017 that the dietary intake data collected uh, in the uh, PURE study of uh, 2017 um, were questionable. There was no mention in this year's in the 2021 PURE study uh, that they uh, had corrected or reconciled uh, data discrepancies. So I presume they still inherit the same problem about questionable data. But as I said, I didn't really get too deep into, into uh, the, the weeds of it. Um, now participants with, I'm talking about the 2021 study now, participants with higher unprocessed red meat intake, uh, according to the study, ate more poultry, fruit and vegetables and they had more fiber in their diet. Similarly, those who reported higher poultry consumption also ate more fruit and vegetables, while those who reported eating less poultry had a higher consumption of refined grains. Now this suggests to me that those reporting higher unprocessed red meat or poultry consumption might have a higher quality diet with more fruit and vegetable and less, whole, less refined grains. So they might benefit from more anti-inflammatory properties in their diet. Now, this could be a reflection of the gaps in socioeconomic development between low-income and high-income countries. Now, large-scale studies like this, it's good because they study the health effects of diet in developing countries. But at the same time, when data from low-income and high-income high income countries are lumped together in a large multinational study, it is very important to tease out the confounding factors like huge gaps in socioeconomic development among them. I know this was noted uh, as one of the flaws 
in the 2017 Pure study, I'm not sure how much further adjustments were actually made in the 2021 Pure study to minimize the conf confounding factor or to avoid the confounding factor like this from skewing their study findings. Um, I also found something interesting in this 2021 study. The quantities of unprocessed meat and poultry reported in the study were categorized into several buckets, like. The first bucket is less than 50 grams per week. The second bucket, 50 to 100 grams per week. The third, 150 to less than 250 grams per week. And then the, the, the fourth one, the final one is uh, 250 or more uh, grams uh, per week. Now an average meat serving size is 75 grams. One palm size of meat, it's about 75 to 100 grams. So for the highest meat consumption category in the 2021 PURE study, which is 250 grams or more a week, we're talking about three or more servings a week. Now, many people, as I know, or as many of us know, in developed countries actually eat more than one serving of meat every day. So I wonder what the findings would be if the researchers had stratified further only within this group um, that consumed 250 grams or more poultry and unprocessed meat per week. If they only stratify further within this particular group, they might find actually some association between higher poultry and unprocessed meat consumption uh, with heart disease. I don't know, but I don't, but I, but they didn't stratify further. Now, in any event, <laughs> I won't put too much stock into the pure studies from 2017 and 2021. Now, meanwhile, uh, the UK Biobank study was published in the BMC Medicine earlier this year. It was a large study following almost um, 475,000 middle-aged adults over a mean period of eight years. On average, participants who reported eating more eating meat regularly, like three or more times a week, had more adverse health behaviors. And it further reported that higher consumption of unprocessed red meat and processed red, red meat combined was associated with higher risk of several common um, uh, conditions like heart disease, uh, colon polyps, uh, diabetes, and so on. And, uh, and higher poultry intake was associated with high risk of several common uh, diseases as well. So this kind of provided a rebuttal to what the, uh, the, the 2021 uh, Pure study found. Now, last year, uh, BMJ published a prospective cohort study involving more than 43,000 male health professionals like dentists, pharmacists, optometrists, uh, veterinary surgeons, uh, and so on, uh, and also physicians. They had, uh, to begin with, uh, the participants had no cardiovascular or cancer at baseline. They were followed for um, over three, they were followed for three decades. Since, um, so this is what they found. Total unprocessed and processed red meat intake were each of them associated with a modestly higher risk of coronary heart disease. So they further found that substituting high quality plant foods such as legumes, nuts, soy for red meat might reduce the risk of heart disease. So again, it goes kind of um, against what the 2021 uh, Pure study found. Now, those two I mentioned, the bio, the U, uh, UK Biobank and also the, the, the US one that I just mentioned, both of them were observational studies, like the Pure studies. Now, mid last year, a meta-analysis was updated and published in PubMed. This meta-analysis meta included 15 RCTs, uh, randomized controlled trials and found that reducing dietary saturated fat lowered the risk of cardiovascular events. Uh, this is what the excerpt from their uh, conclusion reads. Lifestyle advice to all those at risk of cardiovascular disease and to lower risk uh, population groups should continue to include permanent reduction of dietary saturated fat and partial replacement by unsaturated fats. Now, unsaturated fats are found largely in, um, uh, in whole plant foods, like nuts and seeds, uh, whole grains, uh, legumes. 
So we already know animal foods are high in saturated fat and cholesterol. Um, we, are, we already know that health uh, authorities do advise that we minimize the intake of dietary cholesterol, saturated fat and trans fat. I think the, the, the evidence is consistent and compelling that a diet of predominantly if, or even exclusively whole plant foods is good for us. Does it mean there is no place at all or no place or and time at all for meat in anyone's diet? Not quite. Uh, meat, egg and dairy uh, do have nutrients like protein, fat, certain vitamins and minerals, although they have no fiber or phytochemicals. If people are facing hunger or have no reasonable access to plant foods, then I would say, please have some meat uh, and meat is it's needed for them. Um, but most people like us living in developed countries don't need to eat animals to survive or thrive. In fact, we will be so much better off to lay off animal products and bring in plant whole plant foods, um, not just for individual health, but also for public and planetary health. Yeah, and I think you demonstrate something really important with, with all of the studies that you just outlined you're kind of highlighting the fact that, you know, you should take a step back and look at the wider picture. So if a study comes out and then one study suggests maybe maybe consuming animal products is, is not as bad as all of these other studies, it's important to put it in context. It's important to see it in the wider breadth of what we have of, of both, you know, you, you outlined observational studies, but also randomized control trials and all these other things that we have. And then also I thought it was interesting when we were talking about when you were talking about the 2021 peer study, you didn't do like a deep, deep, deep dive, but you were able to just look at it, read some stuff, and then realize that there's quite a bit of nuance to it. And I think that's also important important to not again take just take the headline of something or maybe just the abstract of something and then take that as the word, but rather to actually sit down and, and look at it and see how it applies to to the rest of the, the studies that we have. So as a dietitian, what are some of the biggest questions that you're asked about, you know, especially when it comes to, to, to regarding plant-based eating or whole food plant-based eating? Uh, yes, there, there are quite a number of them. Um, I, I see questions like vegan keto. Um, do we need dairy for, for calcium or something like that? So maybe I'll, I'll talk a bit about vegan keto. Yeah. Keto diets, uh, well, there, there is a time and place for everything, I, I think. Keto diets can be a treatment, especially for pediatric epilepsy. In fact, I just encouraged a client of mine to not turn away from, from a medically supervised keto diet because the patient didn't respond well to anti-epileptic drugs. Um, I also heard that uh, keto diets could potentially benefit patients with certain serious illnesses, uh, for example, advanced uh, stage pancreatic disease. But I, I, on that, I really have no uh, little knowledge of. Now, science is, as we know, it's very solid that plant-based diets confer a lot of health benefits. But some people want to, want the benefits from plant-based diets, but cannot resist keto the keto craze, which is all the rage out there. So we, or I mean uh, the food industry, uh, some nutrition guru and consumers have create, creatively come up with uh, vegan keto diets. Um, a, a, a vegan diet is low in carb, likely five to 10% of daily calorie intake from carb, high in fat, up to 75%, and moderate in protein, um, like 20 to 35%. Now, the idea is to restrict carb and, and relying uh, on a dietary fat uh, to cause the liver to convert fat into molecules like ketones, um, which can then be used as fuel. Can one thrive on a vegan keto diet? It, it's doable. We can, we can choose protein sources such as avocado, uh, olives, uh, certain nuts and seeds, and their, their butters, coconut oil, tofu, tempeh, um, like edamame, seitan, even a few keto-friendly beans like um, uh, lupini beans um, to, to or even soy milk uh, to satisfy the, the, the need for um, higher fat uh, and higher protein. Um, at the same time, uh, there, are, uh, there are many uh, options out there for people who want to go on uh, vegan keto diets to get enough nutrients. Um, and some keto, some vegan keto diets might be less restrictive, uh, even allowing an apple or banana. 
Uh, usually carbohydrates are quite limited, uh, limited to only 20 to 50 grams of carbohydrates. Some, some dieters are going on a vegan keto diet still want to have the feeling that they're eating like rice or noodles. So they may choose like cauliflower rice or zucchini noodles or uh, mashed uh, cauliflower to give them the feeling that they're eating like mashed potato. Or they might have something called note meal made with coconut flour as if they were eating like oatmeal. But in any ways, uh, there are different ways to get around that. Um, and there are things that um, uh, vegan keto dieters should not eat. <laughs> to, um, for example, uh, sugar, refined grains, um, many legumes, uh, starchy vegetables, and so on. So a, a whole list of uh, items. In fact, these items apply to uh, a keto diet, vegan or not. They also need to use supplements. Often they, uh, they, they need like B12, um, DHA, uh, even iron, um, sometimes protein powder as well. And oftentimes they don't get enough fiber, although it they could get enough fiber, but it, it would need quite a bit of attention to plan the vegan, uh, their uh, keto diet, vegan or not. So a lot of times they rely on psyllium husk to get them in or to bump up the, the fiber intake. Now, I'm actually not aware of any research examining the benefits or the risk of a vegan keto diet. Now, in general, I, I, I know that for keto diets, there are uh, some issues. For example, a keto diet, vegan or not, it's restrictive. It's, it's hard to adhere to over the long term because it's so restrictive. Uh, when people tend to go on it for some time, um, hoping to lose weight or having lost enough weight, they may get off it. So it just repeats the cycle of yo-yo dieting. It's, it's not good for anyone. Uh, in terms of nutrition, it could lead to potential nutrient deficiencies simply because a number of foods, health promoting foods get uh, eliminated or limited in, in, in a keto diet, for example, like many fruits, whole grains, many legumes. So for uh, um, a vegan keto dieter um, to go on this kind of diet for a lengthy period of time without paying enough attention to plan the diet, they could run into like iron deficiencies, uh, deficiency in zinc, uh, folate and, and all these. Another thing is, as I said earlier, they could get enough fiber if they plan well, but if they don't plan well, they are missing fiber intake or not having enough fiber intake. And, and we know that fiber is very important to promote uh, gut health. And also gut health actually leads to uh, improvement in, uh, in immune function, uh, insulin sensitivity, and even mood and even weight management and so on. Another one is high saturated fat intake. While a vegan keto diet sounds better, but they still, oftentimes they still use coconut oil to, uh, to satisfy the, uh, the, the need for higher uh, fat intake. And coconut oil, it's very high in saturated fat. And we know that saturated fat um, contributes to chronic inflammation. Um, so again, it's not something that I would recommend. And, but the good thing is that a keto diet, vegan or not, uh, cuts out refined sugar. Uh, trans fat, uh, beer and, and other alcoholic beverages. So all these will, will provide calories, but very little in terms of nutrition. So definitely by cutting out these kind of um, um, empty calories that will contribute uh, uh, quite well to weight loss. Um, so when keto dieters see their, their extra excess pounds melt away, they get motivated. Um, but when when these people lose weight, they automatically, uh, oftentimes, will will see better, uh, will see improvement in their blood lipids and glucose level and so on. But over the long term, the advantage about lasting weight loss promised by keto diets actually disappears. Some research actually shows that uh, keto dieters actually lose less fat than they would have been on a balanced diet, um, like a, a balanced uh, whole food plant based diet. Uh, and there are some side effects about keto diet, like keto flu, bad breath, and I won't get into the details of it. Um, I noticed that when people go on keto diet, oftentimes they, it seems that they fear carbs. They think that uh, carb is not good for the body, but they, sometimes it's just they, they need to understand that not all carbs are created equal. Complex carbs, uh, having lots of fiber and so on, uh, with lots of phytochemicals and all these things are very important for, uh, for our human health. And certainly stay away from uh, refined carbohydrates. 
Today, there is no research examining, uh, examining the benefits and risk of a keto diet. But I remember Dr. David Jenkins actually did a randomized controlled trial comparing a low carb vegan diet, which was referred to as eco, uh, eco Atkins diet uh, or a high carb, um, uh, uh, compare a, a, um, a low carb vegan diet to a high carb lacto ovo vegetarian diet. Both um, have the same uh, calorie intake uh, in the trial. And the finding was interesting. Um, the findings show that the low carb vegan diet containing more protein and fat from gluten and soy products, uh, nuts and vegetable oils actually lower the bad cholesterol, lower total cholesterol and triglyceride as well, more effectively than the high carb, low fat, lacto-ovo vegetarian weight loss diet. So it sounds like the low-carb vegan diet um, actually improved the risk factors for heart disease more than the high-carb, low-fat uh, diet um, involving animal products. Maybe what matters is actually the source of protein um, coming from plants rather than from animals. Um, so I suppose more research later on will shed more light on keto diet or not. I have one more, I have another hot topic uh, type question for you. What can you tell me about vegan diets when it comes to kids and then how paying attention to a kid's diet is different from if you're plant-based as an adult? I know that there have, there have been a number of studies done in different countries, Britain, Germany, and the States over the past several decades. Uh, and they concluded that appropriately planned vegetarian and vegan diets can support the healthy growth and development of children. This is consistent with the uh, position uh, paper or the position of various dietary and health authorities that well-planned whole food plant-based diets are appropriate for all stages of the life cycle, including like pregnancy, lactation, infancy, childhood, adolescence, um, uh, adulthood, and, and even for athletes. The key is well-planned. Um, in fact, all eating patterns with or without animal products need to be well-planned for optimal health. Um, so as parents uh, uh, want to raise their kids vegan, it's great intention, but it's also critical to have good attention to make sure that their kids uh, will get adequate nut nutrition from uh, whole food plant-based diets. And another thing is that when we look at uh, nutrition for children, certainly we need to make sure that we get um, adequate and optimal nutrition to support the, ch the child's growth and development. It's also important for us to think, about, to think about the importance of nutrition to minimize the risk of lifestyle-induced diseases during childhood and beyond. Uh, we know that childhood obesity is spreading around the world and childhood obesity is linked to chronic illnesses in children, like even like type two diabetes, so now it's, it's now uh, diagnosed uh, at younger age. We also have solid research showing that whole food plant-based nutrition is effective in preventing lifestyle diseases that we talked about. So why not start from childhood, especially now that we know uh, health authorities or dietary, dietetic authorities all support that. Um, there is a study done in Finland and published uh, earlier this year, uh, raising a number of important points about, about nutrition for healthy vegan kids. They, uh, I agree with certain aspects or findings of the study, but, but there, are, there are several things I don't agree with, um, especially the, the final assertion. <laughs> so I'm going to talk a bit about that uh, study. The study recruited 40 Finnish students, uh, uh, Finnish children from government funded daycare centers. In total, six vegans, 10 vegetarians and 24 omnivores um, took part in the study. The median age was 3.5 years. And the vegan kids recruited in the study had been vegan since birth. Uh, the vegan and vegetarian kids ate vegan meals uh, and the omnivorous kids ate omnivorous meals at daycare. Um, while at home, the vegetarian kids would consume meals, including eggs and or dairy, although they ate uh, vegan meals at, uh, at daycare. 
Uh, and all these meals were nutritionally planned uh, to meet uh, Finnish nutrition recommendations. I have to say that I'm not very, I'm not familiar with uh, the, the fine details of the nutrition recommendations in Finland. A number of findings in the study are encouraging. For instance, they found that they found no differences between vegans and omnivores on a number of measures, for example, height, BMI, mid-upper arm circumference, which um, measures like how much fat uh, gets accumulated and, and so on, iron, zinc, um, and so on. So, so that, that's, that's encouraging. But some findings, on the other hand, could be uh, concerning or at least would warrant close attention. For example, the study indicates that vitamin A and D status of vegan children um, uh, would need a, a special attention. Now, I do agree it's important to pay attention to uh, vegan children's nutritional requirement. In fact, it, it, it should be true for all children, vegan or not. Like the researchers, I was thinking that both vitamin A and vitamin D are fat-soluble vitamins. It's important that children get enough fat in their diet for various reasons, including like absorption of fat-soluble uh, nutrients and so on. Uh, the study found that vegan kids' uh, fat intake was adequate, but pointed out that vegan food products such as soy milk were often uh, fortified with vitamin D2. Now, as far as I know, most, if not all, research on vitamin D and D supplementation was actually done based on D3. Vegan D supplements come in two forms, D2, which is derived from uh, fungal products, and D3 uh, derived from uh, lichen. In my practice, I usually suggest lichen-derived D3 for vegan uh, adults and children just to be safe, just because I know that most studies on vitamin D uh, were done on D3. The Institute of Medicine's recommendation for vitamin D continues to be 600 international units for individual, individuals from age one and onward. A group of scientists uh, with expertise in, in vegan nutrition for children and women advocate a maintenance dose of vitamin D intake of uh, 600 to 1500 international units per day. That's for children over uh, one year old and for women during pregnancy and or, or lactation. So in my practice, I know um, vegans or uh, adults getting 600 international units per day is not enough based on my practice from what I see uh, in my patients um, D uh, vitamin D test. So I usually recommend 2,000 international units per day, assuming no existing vitamin D deficiency. So that's the maintenance dose. So the point I'm trying to make is that, well, I don't know the vitamin D recommendation in, in Finland, but I do know from my practice, the in Institute of Medicine's recommendation for vitamin D seems a bit low. Uh, it, it, it hasn't been updated for, uh, for some time. Now, another takeaway from the study that I agree with is the dietary recommendations for children um, cannot be extrapolated from adult. I totally agree with that. Um, for example, protein, uh, it's actually uh, true for protein, calcium, and, and, and other nutrients. Um, for example, protein, a child actually, especially young ones, need more protein per kilogram of body weight uh, per day than an adult. And, and think about a child being so small, but they need more protein per kilogram of body weight. So that means we need to find ways to get more nutrients like protein into the food they eat uh, because their stomach is so tiny. That's the, that's the same for calcium. Um, the, the recommendation for calcium intake is a thousand milligram for a four-year-old. That's the same for, an, for a vegan adult. Um, so again, we need to be very creative to make sure that we find ways to get all these nutrients into their tiny stomach. On the other hand, fiber, while we say so many lovely things about fiber, fiber, it's important for, uh, for our health. It's very important to not overdo fiber in a, in a child's, uh, especially a young kid's uh, diet, because we don't want fiber rich foods to fill up the tummy, uh, displacing the opportunity to get um, other nutrients into their food. Um, so, so we all have to be very careful about that. Another one is fat. Oftentimes we hear that low-fat diet it's good for uh, it's good for human good for adults or uh, vegan adults. Kids actually need 
a good amount of fat, especially for young ones. For example, they need 40% of their calories at age one coming from fat and gradually down to 30% by age three. But sometimes we hear like 80-10-10 diet for, for vegans. That 80-10-10, that means like 10% from fat. That's way, way too low for, for a child. So we all have to be very careful. Um, so finally, I just wanted to say that there are things I do agree with this study, but I don't agree with the study that uh, we need more uh, research to uh, before we can actually recommend whole food plant-based eating to, uh, to, uh, uh, to a child. In fact, we have enough information that whole food plant-based eating can be good for everyone, including children, um, but we just need to plan it appropriately. Now, before we wrap things up, let's say someone was listening to this podcast and you've really, you know, inspired them to either try a vegan diet or even try a more plant-based diet. What's your advice for them if they want to get started? I think it's important to understand their motivation, uh, why they want to do it. Uh, when, when we understand the motivation, we also, uh, as I said earlier, it's not just about their motivation, uh, what, they, what they really want to achieve. To, um, it's important to know their expectations. As I said earlier, if their uh, hope is to have um, whole food plant-based diet to reverse all the conditions, health conditions they have, it may be possible, but some conditions just cannot be done uh, exclusively uh, through nutrition, such as like uh, eating disorder. Um, and then, then if they have interest to explore whole food plant-based eating, um, doesn't need to be 100%, then, we, then I will find ways to work with them uh, to see what barriers they may have. Uh, is it because of their uh, or lack of family support, food access, or not having enough time to cook. Um, so all these potential barriers that might uh, prevent them from getting into plant-based eating. Then having explored their motivation, uh, their uh, goals, and the, the barriers, then we can work on actionable uh, items. It's a journey. It's not a race. <laughs> we want to make sure whatever they want to adopt should be sustainable. So how, how do we make it sustainable is to help them come up with their own decisions, a decision that they feel comfortable with. For example, a, a decision can be a simple one, replacing the cow's milk that they may use for, the, for their breakfast with a plant-based milk. Again, it depends on their goal. If their goal is to get uh, more protein, then the plant-based milk should be like a pea-based milk or soy milk rather than uh, an almond milk or something like that. If they are willing to go further than, than a breakfast, then maybe think about uh, a tofu sandwich or a hummus wrap uh, instead of a chicken sandwich. So these are ideas I can we can uh, kind of uh, bounce around and also make sure that they understand that they don't have to sacrifice everything they, they like eating. Um, uh, for example, there are many delicious options out there uh, when it comes to like vegan ice cream, cheese, uh, plant-based meat, um, so many options out there. So again, it's to work with their likes and dislikes and suggest viable alternatives for them to, uh, to explore and, and work with them uh, to get around their uh, obstacles. It could be like time constraint or um, um, financial issues and so on and so forth. And lastly, I think it's very important for me to, to remind them uh, or to um, to help them to uh, appreciate uh, changes that uh, there's a say, saying, fail to plan is to plan to fail. So if we, um, during a session, a client may be very excited about the possibility of adopting plant-based eating, but after the session, life's get in the way. So I encourage them to take a bit of time to make a plan. The plan should include uh, them visualizing themselves incorporate some of these actionable items into their daily living and also anticipating some detours if life gets in the way. Um, again, it, it's a journey, not a race. Uh, if they fall down at some point, let's say getting a, a beef burger instead of a plant-based burger, 
it's not a failure. We just need to get back on track and uh, and think about um, more wholesome plant foods they can choose going forward rather than dwelling on the, the things they didn't do right in the past. I, I just have to remind myself and, my, and, and kind of share with my clients that uh, becoming vegan or adopting plant-based diet, it's a process. Uh, it's not about perfection. <laughs> we, we don't want the perfect to be um, the enemy of the good. Debbie, it's been a, a real pleasure talking to you in this interview. I feel that I that I truly learned a whole lot that I didn't know. And I, I really appreciate your, your ability to recall all of these, um, these studies and other things that you talked about with me today and kind of put all of this in context for us. So thank you for this. Thanks very much for having me, Clint. Um, thanks for the, uh, for the opportunity. Of course. This podcast featured royalty-free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guests for speaking with us and sharing their insights. And of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website, www.plantbasedcanada.org, and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org and our Plant-Based Canada YouTube channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.